You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. The reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. And it's on page 271 in the Church Bibles. The birth of Samuel. There was a certain man from Ramathaeum, a Sophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohoam, son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her to order, to, in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. If you've got the Bible open, keep it open as we look at 1 Samuel. Uh, The anti-monarchy group, Republic, 
have been organising Not My King demonstrations in the lead-up to Charles's coronation on May the 6th. They've branded Charles as just a bloke in a suit who spends lots of our money. You can even buy one of these trendy T-shirts online, Not My King. And I suggest you wear this T-shirt on May the 8th. After all, it would be wrong to enjoy a bank holiday for a king that you don't want. Now, we live in strange, paradoxical times. On the one hand, we live in a time of expressive individualism. That is, the highest goal is to discover our authentic self and to live it out. We are to be our own self-governing authority. On the other hand, we're obsessed with leaders. We love to choose and celebrate them while rejecting and reviling others. We love to follow leaders and we love to see leaders fall. We allow some leaders to influence us while we reject the influence of others. Our lives are shaped by the influence of different people whose examples, ideas, organizations, teachings, values are things we follow. By definition, leaders are those who are followed. Now, some of these leaders might be part of the royal family. Some of these leaders we follow might be politicians. They might be foreign leaders. They might be sports leaders. They might be leaders in entertainment. They might be leaders in business. They may even, if you're trendy enough, be the latest influencers on social media. If you don't know what that is, then speak to Nay later because he's much trendier than I am. (laughs) We love to follow leaders. Now, I remember growing up and looking to John Lennon as a leader. Might surprise you or not. I listened to his music and I read things he said like this. He said, life happens when you're busy making other plans. Now, in sixth form college, as I was making plans for university, I thought, what a cool guy to follow. But then John Lennon said, I am the walrus, cuckoo-cachoo, which left me kind of confused. Round about the same time, another leader I followed was King Eric. Here he is. Eric Cantona transformed the fortunes of Manchester United and English football. He played football like nobody else. He had an arrogance on the pitch which was matched by his performance. He smoked. He, was, he liked art. He was exotic because he was French. And he was a brilliant footballer. But like all human leaders, Eric had flaws. Occasionally, when they deserved it, he would karate kick supporters. <laughs> and he would give cryptic answers at press conferences like, When the seagulls follow the troller, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. That's quite a good French accent, isn't it? Are you impressed? I can tell. Thank you. Uh, now, I wonder... Who are some of the leaders, take that off, you'll be distracted. Who are some of the leaders who've shaped your life? Who are some of the leaders who have shaped your life? Who are the leaders who are shaping your life today? 
Some of these leaders will be obvious. They're people that you spend time reading and watching and listening to. Some of these leaders might not be so obvious. It might be the radio presenter you listen to in the car. It might be the family member. It might be the opinionated work colleague. We all follow leaders. Now, this paradox of individual freedom whilst following leaders can be traced all the way back to the first humans, Adam and Eve. As Nay reminded us, Adam and Eve were created by God to rule his creation on his behalf. God was to rule over Adam and Eve. God was to be their leader whilst Adam and Eve ruled over the creation. And we know what happened, don't we? Adam and Eve reject God's rule. Seeking to rule themselves, expressive individualism. And in each of us, this paradox plays out. We want individual freedom, but we also want to follow and be influenced by leaders too. You see, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are one big story about how God provides a leader to a leaderless people. Once Samuel is set towards the end of the book of Judges, and the last line of the book of Judges is a famous one, which you probably know. It says, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Expressive individualism was the flavor of the day, and it caused death and destruction. There's a reason we don't teach the last few chapters of Judges to our children. They are horrific and harrowing and horrible. There is rape. There is somebody who gets cut up into 12 pieces. There is genocide. It is grim when people live without a king. Into this context of a leaderless people comes one Samuel. The book is set around about 1050 BC and it follows the rise of three leaders in Israel. Firstly, there's a prophet Samuel. Secondly, there's the people's king who's Saul. And thirdly, there's God's chosen king, David. Now, as we work our way through these books, we're going to be aware that for all the good these leaders do, And for all their failings too, there'll be a leader we cannot ignore. Whatever we learn about these earthly leaders, our hearts are going to long for a true and better leader. Hence, if you notice when you came in, the title series for this sermon, or this series rather, is Longing for the True King. Now the best way I could describe this, and again I apologise, this is another football illustration... But I'm not that well read, so you've got to deal with what you've got. Is The best illustrating thing about this is when Man- Manchester United play, whether they win or lose, the manager is always overshadowed when the camera pans to Sir Alex Ferguson watching in the stadium. You see, no matter how good or how bad, and there's been a lot of bad United managers, the United crowd, they always long for Sir Alex And when we read 1st and 2nd Samuel, our hearts are to long for the truest, the mightiest, and the loveliest of all kings, King Jesus. 
He sits high above all the leaders of 1 Samuel and all the leaders that we look to follow today. So as we start 1 Samuel, we immediately want to answer the question, who is going to lead this leaderless people? Who is going to lead this leaderless people? And how God answers this is going to show that God works in ways that are different to ours. God works through the ordinary and God works through the desperate. So that's our two points today. God works through the ordinary and God works through the desperate. So it's a bit of a lengthy introduction, but it's the start of a new book. So bear with me. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll look at the passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that a text that is written 3,000 years ago speaks into our hearts today. That is because your word is living and active and it is true. And I pray, Father, you would grant us the humility to listen to your word today and to be affected by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start in verse 1. Ruth did a great job pronouncing all those names. I'm going to probably say them a lot differently, but I would go with Ruth's pronunciation rather than mine, because I can't read. There we go. So there was a certain man from Ramathay, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerahoam, the son of Elu, the son of Tehu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Phew. Okay, right. Now, four times, I've mentioned this before, but four times towards the end of the book of Judges, we have this line that keeps coming up. In those days, Israel had no king. And then in 1 Samuel, it opens up, was there was a certain man. And we're bound to wonder, is this the one who's going to be king of Israel? This certain man, is he going to be the king of Israel? Well, let's just take a moment to imagine a job advert for this would-be king. Okay, hopefully it's better than these job adverts I found on the internet. Surgeon wanted for a new health clinic opening in the area. No experience needed. Must have own tools. Not sure how many people are going to that surgeon. It looks like some of you have. No, sorry. Okay. Uh, Cheeky. What about this one? Wanted somebody to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I have only done this once before. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't the internet wonderful? Anyway, in our job advert for this would-be king, we'd want a good leader. Why? Because these 12 tribes of Israel are often disunited and divided this king must be extremely patient because the people grumble an awful lot and they fight this king must be a skilled warrior because the people who fight aren't actually really good fighters and keep getting beaten by all their enemies and this would-be king must be from a good family so the people will respect you and follow you Now, does this certain man mentioned in verse 1 match the job description? Well, we would say certainly not. But there are things we know about this certain man. We know his name is Elkanah, which means God has created. We know he's got two wives and he loves one Hannah more than the other. 
We know each year he goes to offer sacrifices in Shiloh. We know some of his family tree, some of the names of his his dad and his grandfather and his great-grandfather are mentioned. But none of these guys are, are standout guys of the Old Testament. We know that he comes from a place called Ramatham or Ramar in verse 19. But that town, again, doesn't present very much to us. And there's also hints maybe that he might be from, he might have links with Bethlehem because he's an Ephraimite. But again, at this point, Bethlehem has no significance in Israel's history. In the kindest possible way, Elkanah and his family are nobodies. He's an ordinary guy. He's nothing significant. And yet from this ordinary guy, Samuel, the first leader of this leaderless people, comes from. Samuel does not come from the powerful and prominent. Samuel comes from the obscure and the ordinary. Now I wonder how many people here today have had their confidence knocked. Because at some point in your life someone said or implied that there was nothing special about you. That you wouldn't amount to much. Maybe it was a teacher Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a peer or a work colleague. Maybe someone in church taught something along the lines as, if you're not theologically trained, then you're a second-class Christian. And whatever these words were, they've haunted you for years. And you still feel the effects of them now. You might struggle with self-doubt or self-belief. When you hear criticism... It sends you into a spiral because it brings back loads of negative feelings. You might have a chip on your shoulder because of the way you've been treated. Or you might fear disappointing people so you retreat, not willing to step out. If that is you, you need to hear two things this morning. First thing is this. You are someone special. Because like God created Elkanah, God has created you and me. That's what we're teaching the children. But don't we as adults need to hear that as well? This is who we are. Our value and worth comes because we are made in the image of God. And secondly, there is nothing wrong with being ordinary. We have this false view that God only uses extraordinary people to do his work. If if you're thinking that, you don't know the Bible. The Bible's full of ordinary people who God works through. God uses ordinary people. People that society looks over to do his work. There's a book about a guy called Tim Keller that's come out recently and I heard a review about it. Now, if you don't know Tim Keller, Tim Keller has written a lot of books in the last 20 years. Some people say that he's one of the most influential preachers and thinkers of the last 100 years. We might say that he is an extraordinary man. He's the kind of guy that all churches would love to have. However, do you know what's commended most about Tim Keller? All these people who write about him. The thing that they commend most about Tim Keller is that he does 
ordinary things extraordinary well. He speaks about Jesus. He lives a faithful Christian life and he loves God's word. How I wish I would strive to be more ordinary. How I wish that ECC would be filled with more ordinary people. Ordinary people who love doing ordinary things, speaking about Jesus, living for Jesus, reading Jesus' words. There's nothing ordinary about any of you. You are made in the image of God. And yet striving after ordinariness should be what we're about. You see, God used ordinary Elkanah to provide a leader, Samuel, to a leaderless people. God used ordinary Mary to provide a leader, Jesus, to a people in need of a true and faithful and good leader. And God uses ordinary people like me and you to tell people and show people what our leader Jesus is like. That he is true. That he is faithful. That he is good. Friends, do not despise the ordinary. And then we go on to our second and last point. And you're all thinking this last point must be a long one. It's not really. But anyway... God works through the ordinary. God works through the desperate. You see, if one of the lies we believe is God works through extraordinary people, another lie that has crept into the church is this, that God only uses joyful, emotionally competent people, or stable people, shall we say. And this leads to us playing games in church, It's not like we play a game and hide and seek. Rather, we play a game of hide our true emotion. We think that if we really tell people how we're feeling, then people will think we're needy. People will think we're weak. People will think less of us. And this has to stop. You see, I want ECC to be a place where it's okay not to be okay. What I mean is that anyone can come here on a Sunday morning and they can comfortably share what they're feeling because they're going to be surrounded by people who show grace, who don't make judgments and who point lovingly to the Lord Jesus. I want ECC to be a place that is known for welcoming desperate people and walking with them in their desperation. I want ECC to be a place that believes with all their heart that God works through desperate people. And this is good news. And we see it in our passage, don't we, in verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. You see, Elkanah's first wife, Hannah, is not able to have children. We're told in verses 6 and 7, it was the Lord who closed her womb. Now, I realize at this point, there's a lot that could be said. And I don't want to be insensitive and I don't want to scare this very important issue. But what I would do, I would recommend people go and listen to Al's sermon, very sensitive and pastorally wise sermon from Mothering Sunday. As he looked at this passage and the issue of of barrenness in more detail than I'm going to cover today. 
Okay, because the focus today is an introduction to 1 Samuel. However, what we can say is Hannah feels the desperation of her situation further as Penaniah taunts her in verse 6 and 7 about her barrenness. Hannah knows that her desperation has been brought on by the Lord and it's to the Lord she turns to in prayer. Have a look at verse 10 and 11 with me. It says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And then we have that little bit where Eli sees her lips moving and thinks she's been on a, on a few beers. Verse 15, Hannah says, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Can you see what's happening there? In Hannah's desperation, she prays a desperate prayer. Look at the words. Deep anguish. Weeping bitterly. Deeply troubled. Pouring out my soul. Great anguish and grief. Hannah is a desperate woman praying a desperate prayer. I wonder when was the last time you prayed like that. If we're being perfectly honest, the truth is we rarely pray like that. And the reason we rarely pray like that is we have a too high view of ourselves and a too low view of God. What do I mean? Well, we rarely pray to God in our desperation because fundamentally, deep down, we think we can fix our own problems. We believe the lie, don't we, that the only person you can really rely on is yourself. We think too highly of ourselves. And at the same time, we think too lowly of God. We don't think God is powerful enough to change things or that he's loving enough to care about our situation. We don't pray in desperation because we don't believe the right things about God. You probably remember the harrowing story that used to be told about the orphanages in Romania in the 1980s. That visitors would talk about walking the corridors and the corridors were silent. (coughs) They were silent because the babies had stopped crying out because nobody would come to them. And sometimes we remain silent in our prayers because we think God won't respond to them. However, think about what Jesus taught us about prayer. Jesus taught that prayer is a child speaking to his father. What do children do? Children insist and they clamor and they persist until they get what they want. Children cry out in the middle of the night or when they scrape the knee or when the batteries aren't working in the Xbox controller. Why? Because they have faith that someone will hear them and someone will respond to them. 
We cry out in faith to God when we trust he will hear us and he will respond to us. It is in faith that we cry out to God in our desperation. And when we cry out in faith, God works through our desperation. Now Hannah's situation is desperate because she knows she cannot do anything about it. It is the Lord who's closed her womb. So in desperation, she pours out her soul to God. And then in verse 18, something incredible happens. Look at the end of verse 18. We're told that she went her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. What's happened? Hannah has given her desperation to God. She has desperately prayed, and now her face is no longer downcast. Now, it's important we get this right, because at this point, Hannah doesn't know that God has answered her prayer with a child. She doesn't know that. But what she has done is, she is peace. How she got peace? Because she's trusting in a good and powerful God. A God whose works are always right. And this is how God works in our desperation. God brings us peace because we give our desperation over to a good and sovereign God. A God whose works are always right. It reminds us of the words of Paul in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You see, the Christian life promises times of desperation. Some of that desperation may be brought on by our bad choices, but some of that desperation may be by the hand of the Lord. And in those times, we'll either run from the Lord or we'll run to the Lord. And the direction we run will depend on who we're trusting in. If we're trusting in ourselves, if we're trusting in earthly leaders, we'll turn away from God. But if we're trusting in God as our leader, we'll turn to him. And when we turn to God in our desperation we'll find a peace that transcends all understanding because we trust our good and sovereign God whose works are always right. Do not despise desperation. So we've seen today how God is going to work. How is he going to bring a leader to a leaderless people? He's going to work through the ordinary. He's going to work through the desperate. We know that leader isn't going to be Elkanah, but it's going to be through him, an ordinary man, and his desperate wife, that God will be at work. And we're told at the end of the passage, Samuel is born. He's dedicated to the Lord. He's dropped off for a a long sleepover uh, with Eli the priest. But you'll notice as we talked about this, there's always a longing of a true and better king. So we know, don't we, that Samuel's birth is not unique in the Bible. Women like Sarah, like Rachel, like Samson's mum, like Elizabeth, 
all shared Hannah's desperation only for the Lord to grant them a child. God often works in ways that are different to ours. Samuel's birth points us to the true leader, Jesus. Jesus was not born to a barren woman, but he was born to a childless woman. A woman who was not even married. A woman who had not known a man. This woman conceived as the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Mary was carrying the Son of God. This ordinary girl was going to give birth to an extraordinary child. The child who would perfectly obey his father, showing us what it looks like for a man to be led by God. Jesus Christ, the servant leader, would not use his divinity to lord it over people, but he would lay down his life for his people. On the cross, Jesus Christ gives hope in our desperation. Remember, it's in the death of Jesus, the most desperate event in all of history, that we see God's goodness and sovereignty at work. At the cross, we see God bringing forgiveness and salvation to desperate sinners like me and to you. On the cross, Jesus would identify with the desperate because he would entrust his life to the Father in his most desperate time of need. And it's this Jesus that we come to in our desperation because he emphasizes, or he emphasizes, he has empathy rather with us in our desperation it's this jesus who gives us peace when we cry out in faith and friends it is this jesus who uses ordinary people like me and you to do his work in this world let me pray heavenly father thank you for what we've heard today Father, it's not an easy passage. There may be things that have come up today which we've tried to bury. We've tried to forget. Because they're hurtful. People have said unkind things. The world has been unkind to us. And yet I pray in the darkness, in the brokenness, there would be great hope. That hope becomes because you are the God who works through ordinary people. You are the God who works through the desperate that we look at the Lord Jesus and we see in the great desperate times of the cross your goodness and sovereignty and love shine brightly. And that gives us hope that in our desperation you are at work. I pray for anyone today who is in despair. I pray, Father, that they would give their desperate desperation over to you and you would give them peace as they come to trust that you are good and sovereign And your works are always right. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.